and try to find something or someone that could even begin to match you and your worth. And we would never find anything that ever came close. We would just find meaninglessness, purposelessness, uh, chaos. And uh, we thank you that uh, you make yourself known to us so that we don't have to continue searching. Uh, we found in you and in your son uh, the answer and the meaning and the purpose. And we ask that right now, through your word, you would challenge us to live for you, to live on purpose, and that we would glorify you with our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, if anybody were to ask me, uh, Lucas, does your church love you? I'll say, yes, indeed. And I say, well, how do you know? And I can go to a lot of things. Uh, support, praying for me, uh, different things. But I think the first thing that my mind would race to was this morning being an example. Three different people approached me, just asked how I'm doing, because the Red Sox are in such a hole. Uh, <laughs> You guys know me enough to know that I'm silently weeping and feel very crushed, and um, it's sad. It's sad, especially because of how hyped up they were going into the season. ESPN analysts, sports gurus saying, Red Sox, it's in the bag. They've World Series. And as soon as I heard that, I go, oh, man, it's over. You just, you just jinx it. Somebody said, that's the kiss of death. That's true. But on the other hand, I like it. And here's why I like it. Going in, knowing that you're not the underdog and you're supposed to just sweep everybody and, and destroy, completely annihilate every other baseball team going in, that's no good. Teams thrive when you're under a little bit of pressure. Teams thrive when you're against the odds a little bit. And 2004... All the statistic guys pulled out their sheets and their numbers and said, there's no way the Red Sox can win this. Facing the Yankees, down 3-0 in this playoff series, all the Yankees had to do was one, win one more game. All they had to do was win like two more innings, and it was over. All they had to say, no team has ever, they did their history work, no team has ever recovered from that hole. So this is impossible. And the Red Sox broke an 86-year curse of, winless streak, and in 2004 won the World Series. Now here we are. All the statistic guys are back out again. Red Sox dropped their first six games. No team in the history of Major League Baseball has ever won the World Series if they dropped their first six. I go, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we need. Why? We base, when we base our things that we do on experience and statistics and a bunch of letdowns, We'll never step out and do great things, and we'll never step out and do great things for God. If we look at our life and we go, look at how we're in the hole. Look at how many negative things there are. Look how many things are going wrong. You're not going to be able to step out in faith and say, but God. But God can do something else. Yes, the statistics say this, but God can do that. And I think if you're like me, 
you can very easily get kind of stuck in a rut where you're looking at the stats, you're looking at the negatives, you're looking at all the things that you're looking at the facts, but you're not looking at faith. I want to take you to an amazing passage in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, <coughs> we see this, this story that's not supposed to happen. A conversion that's not supposed to take place. Um, the last person on earth at this time that would ever even think about Christianity becomes a Christian. Let's look at it in chapter 9. You remember a couple of chapters ago, Stephen was stoned to death for, for proclaiming Christ. And there was a young man named Saul standing on the side. And he was watching everybody's garments and purses and blackberries while all these guys just had a workout tossing rocks at Stephen. And he was guarding them and he looked on with approval. And then the text tells us that after Stephen got killed, it was like persecution broke out. Well, guess who was leading the persecution? That guy Saul. Look at in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Let's pause there a second. Still breathing. In other words, Luke is trying to say, remember back in Acts chapter 7, how Saul and the persecution broke out? That's still happening. And yes, the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. And yes, these the other people are getting saved and the church is growing and they're thriving. But let me let, let me get back to that for a second because the, the persecution is still happening. And it's not like they're just trying to slap some lawsuits. Breathing threats and murder, it's like... This was Paul, this was Saul's, this is, this is what he breathed. This, he woke up in the morning and just, ah, I want to kill some Christians. I mean, this was, uh, he attempted this holocaust against Christians. It says he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christian, men or women, he didn't care frail or strong or weak or tall, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem to do what with them? We learn that in verse 1. He wants to murder them. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here we have the three-minute testimony of of the worst guy you could think of, the, the, the least likely candidate you can think of to be saved. If you want to talk about the odds being against you, or if you want to look at the facts, you go, now I could think of some people maybe that are kind of close, maybe some of the Pharisees that were like on the fence about Jesus. Now you've got this guy who's not on the fence. He knows clearly where he stands when it comes to Christ. And anybody who says Christ says they believe in Jesus, says they are, go to this thing that they call the way, the Christian church. He wants to kill them, male or female. Wipe them out. They, they do not belong on this earth. They should be snuffed out completely. And then suddenly a flash of light. He's on the floor. He's blind. The voice is talking to him. and It's this miraculous conversion. 
of the man named Saul. Now, some of you know that this man Saul, we know him as Paul. After his conversion, and then he writes, he wrote most of the New Testament. He goes around and plants all these churches. In fact, Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. Up until this point, there was Jews getting saved, Samaritans, Samaritans getting saved, but Paul's the one that takes the gospel out to the Gentile world. So if you're in here and you're not Jewish, you have a lot to thank for what Paul ended up doing. Suffering for the name of Christ in lands that are not, uh, that are foreign to, to the Jewish scriptures. Nobody saw it coming. And then suddenly it happens. Now this passage switches to another guy. It's another guy that when I say his name, you'll think of someone else, but it's not that guy, it's someone else. His name's Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira, they got to drop that? No, another guy. And this guy we forget about. We're so wowed and shocked by the conversion of Saul that we kind of forget this guy. But look what happens in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas... Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Here comes the stats. Okay, This is an evil dude. You want me to go to this guy's house? You, you could have said go to Frank's house. You could have said go to Sally's house. Saul? I know who you're talking about. He says, this man, <laughs> I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Remember those letters that Saul went and got? Those are still in his satchel. The ink is still fresh on those. He has the right, as soon as he finds out you're a Christian, to bind you up and take you to go get killed. And God is telling Ananias, go visit that guy. And I says, I've heard about this guy, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here's, he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And from Acts chapter 9, verse 19 and forward, you get this, this amazing saint of the church who is tortured for Christ, beat up for Jesus, wins debates with Pharisees, wins all kinds of Greeks and, and Jews and non-Jews and all kinds of people with his, with his ability to preach the gospel. He plants different churches in different areas. And the, the letters that we have, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, these are churches to his, letters to his church plants. He even raised up pastors and then he, he, 
trained the pastors, taught them, and we've got those letters, First and Second Timothy, Titus. This guy was so influential that one slave ran away, and when, the, and when that slave was caught, the church was like, hey, man, you're a Christian guy. You're supposed to go back. You can't just be running away. Well, if I go back, I might get killed. And so Paul writes a letter to the master just to convince him, hey, we're brothers in Christ. Let this guy go. He's a good guy. That book is called Philemon. I mean, this, this Paul is no small player in Christianity. We're here because of Paul, because God used Paul to reach the Gentile nations and write most of the New Testament. And so we're going from somebody who is the least likely, the chief of sinners, to somebody who is uh, a hero, a hero of the faith. As we talked about last week, that switch from one to the next, that's the power of God. That's not, we can't preach a perfect sermon or you can't evangelize somebody enough to the point where they just, fine, I'll give my life to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. God shows up suddenly and they're his. But the score I want to, the point I want to score with you this morning is that I think you and I identify with Ananias. I mean, if you were Ananias, you would have responded, I would have, I would have argued more. I would have been like, Lord, I get what you're saying, but can you give me a sign that I know I won't get killed? I mean, this guy, there's no way he turned around. I know you're telling me he, you, you know, met him on the road and everything, but there's no way. I can't see that. All I see is the, the deaths. You know, the membership role at the church at Jerusalem with all these lines, all these names checked off because they've been dragged off and jailed or killed. That's what I see. And now you're telling me go over there because he converted? I can't, it's hard to believe that a conversion like that can really happen, can really take place. Um, I think it's a testament to the sheer power of God to change your life. And I just want to take a, a real short time out right here and just squeeze this in here. Um, if you're a believer and you had a way of life before Christ and then you come to Christ and your way of life is just like barely noticeably different, be challenged by this passage. Be challenged by this passage. I mean, talk about a complete 180 where your, your life is all about yourself and all about something else. And then your life is suddenly all about Jesus. Some of us, I think, kind of slip into Christianity. Like, yeah, we said a prayer and we kind of, then we just, we were kind of not going to church and now we kind of are going to church and it's kind of like we slip in there. But when God takes over a life, it's just this radical overhaul. I mean, He guts the basement, cleans out the closets, changes your life. So I think we look at this and say, wow, I mean, it, have I really met Jesus in a way, in that, that in a way that's powerful, that's, that completely overhauls my life? I think we need to be challenged by that. But now I think about who are the Saul's in our life. I mean, I had to wrestle with my own heart and say, you know, are there people that that I can think of where I would say, yeah, right. I will never see that person in heaven. I mean, there's no way. I could think of a couple. One of them I've mentioned before in another sermon, his name is Christopher Hitchens. You could just YouTube his name. Now, I wouldn't encourage younger Christians to YouTube his name because he'll confuse you. I mean, this guy... He's not just atheist, he's anti-theist, right? He's not like, I, I just don't believe in God. He's like, I hate God. He wrote a book that, that, you know, millions have read already called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And so the whole book, he just walks you through how bad religion is, how it's bad to believe in God. It's not just like, eh, I choose not to believe. It's wrong to believe in God. 
He gets so angry that I, I, I think to myself, how can you be so angry at someone who doesn't believe exists? I think he does believe in God and he just hates him. I mean, this guy, he ridicules. He does debates with Christians and the Christians are trying their best to stay cool under the collar and like explain apologetics. And he just takes cheap shots all day long, ridicules the, the person that he's debating and it's mean and unfair. And he's kind of funny. So he uses humor to get the crowd on his side. They're all laughing at some at the other guy with him. And he doesn't win the debate. He just wins the people over with anger and humor. Many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called The God Delusion. If you believe in God, you're delusional. I'm going to read you a quote <coughs> found on page 31 in The God Delusion. He says, the God of the Old Testament, right? So I'm not, he's not talking about just God in general, specifically the God that you and I worship. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's who God is, says he. And I mean, you, you hear that there's like a seething rage underneath. It's not a detached emotional thing where it's like, you know what, I've looked at the evidence. I've weighed the pros and cons, and I just come down on the side of I just don't believe in God. No, it's like if you believe in God, you're an idiot. If you believe in God, you're pushing a religion that's ruining the world. They blame wars on the world. They blame, they blame, you know, if you want to talk about 9-11, they're like, those people believed in God, and they believe what they did, and they say, and they'll say extreme Christians are worse than extreme Muslims. It's anti-theism. And I look at guys like that, and I'm like, man, they're way gone. But that's not that different than Saul. These guys at least aren't killing Christians. They probably would if they could, maybe. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Saul was dragging Christian women by the hair and dragging them off to go get killed. And he's like, Ananias, go talk to that guy. Go pray for him. If the Lord is like, Lucas, I want you to go to Christopher Hitchens' house, get past security somehow, and lay hands on him. I'd be like, what? Then I'd come here and be like, guys, you need to find a new pastor <laughs> because he'll probably kill me or arrest me. And you'll need somebody else to preach next Sunday. I mean, it would just be, it would just be the most difficult thing to believe that somebody like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins can be brothers in Christ. It's possible. It's possible. Because nobody's too bad to come to the Lord. Right? I mean, we say that, but do we really, really believe that? See, I think you and I, we say, yeah, anybody can come to Christ, but really, in real life, it's the ones that were warmed up enough. It's the ones that, if they had just had at least a good mom or a good dad in their life, it's the ones that, if they come to church often enough, and maybe over time we could possibly convince them, maybe, maybe those. And then you read a passage like this and you're like, it could be that 
nobody evangelized anything. Just God just bam took over and it's possible. And that's something that God can do. That's something that God does. And then I find myself challenged to pray for Christopher Hitchens and to pray for Richard Dawkins. We're supposed to love our enemies, right? I mean, to pray for someone like that. And not just pray, God, can you please uh, set up a debate with him and Ravi Zacharias? And can Ravi Zacharias just like completely humiliate him and everyone can see that he's wrong? Maybe we could pray that. But to pray, God, I pray for Christopher Hitchens' soul. I pray that you would just meet him on that road to Damascus, on the road, on his way, driving to a debate, on his way to to do a signing at a bookstore for one of his anti-God books, and just meet him in the car or meet him in his limo or whatever he's doing, and and just take over his life. Pray for that. I find it hard to do, but when I read a story like this, I go, you know what? God is in the business of converting people. And he doesn't convert them based on the merits of how convertible they are. God's not in the business of saving just the savable. It's based on God's grace. It's based on what Jesus did. So it has nothing to do, in some respects, those of us who think we're kind of almost in and we just need like a little boost, we're worse candidates than Christopher Hitchens. At least Christopher Hitchens will admit, hey, I don't like God. I don't love God. I don't I hate church. He'll say it at least. But we need to realize that God, the business of conversion is not just trying to get the people that are on the fence, but it could be just anybody. It could be the worst enemy of the gospel. And I, I gotta think that there's people in our lives that maybe we gave up on praying for them. You know, that person is just, I mean, we pray for them, they come to church, they roll their eyes, they fall asleep, they draw on the bulletins, who knows what they're doing, but they're not paying attention. They hate church, they hate God, they don't like it. So I'm going to just focus my prayers and my evangelistic efforts on somebody who seems a little bit more ready. The problem is, you don't know who's more ready. It could be someone like the Ethiopian eunuch, who's searching and seeking and digging into scripture and serving it up on a silver platter, like, hey, Philip, can you explain this to me? Sure. That one's easy. That's a slam dunk. Or it could be like Saul where no one is involved. He's walking on the road. He falls off his horse. Jesus speaks to him. And he's got to just go wait to go get discipled. And then God speaks to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go pray for this guy. Ananias is like, that guy? Not that guy. What do you mean not that guy? I changed his life. Don't question me. I changed that guy's life. So you can no longer hold his track record over him. You can no longer look at the statistics and say, well, God can't do that. No, I did that. Now go pray for him. And I think you and I, as, as, as human beings that are frail and we struggle with faith and we struggle with really believing what we see in Scripture, we kind of pigeonhole people in our lives. You know, that, that grandfather that just, just will not repent, would just, oh, just, it's just not going to happen. Well, it could happen. Pray for that person. You might really hate a certain politician. Or you might think of people like I put up, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or people like that that are anti-church. And if they had their way, they would completely wipe out Christianity from the face of the earth. And to pray for them. I think that takes a lot. But we have this personal responsibility to uh, communicate the gospel in our lives. If God is prodding you to talk to that person, and he looks like a weed-smoking Rastafarian, and you're like, that person is never. But you feel prompted, like, you know, talk to him? Talk to him. 
You know, God puts people in your lives that are completely, you know, out there with their religious thoughts. And you're like, ah, I just, there's no way. But you feel led, like, pray for that person or talk to that person. You, you do it. You respond. Because we've got to stop looking at externals, engaging how ready someone is to accept Christ based on their track record, based on statistics, based on what we would say are the facts. The real fact is you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. God could be ready to take somebody's life for him. And you could be that Ananias in that moment. And Ananias had a decision to make. I'm going to respond because I know that God can change anybody, or I'm going to sit here and just kind of lay back because deep down in my heart, I don't really believe that God can change someone like that. Maybe someone over here, but not that guy. And then I think of us as a church. And we have our prayer gatherings. And we get together first Friday of every month and we pray, God, you know, reach this community. God, use us to, to reach people and to bring them in here. And we pray that for our church and we pray that for um, this fellowship. And we pray that on Sunday mornings and we go through the book of Acts and we look at evangelism and how God reaches people. And it doesn't matter where they are and it doesn't matter where they're from or how bad they've been or how anti-God they are. God can do it. God can scoop them. God can do that. And we say that, but do we really believe it? Now I'll bear my soul with you. I wrestle with that. And I go, you know what? There's so many churches in this area. I wonder if everybody who's spiritually, you know, on that playing field where they're ready to accept or ready to go to church or ready to engage and start thinking about God. That, that, that's all been, that source has all been tapped. You know, that well is dry. Everybody who's going to be going to church, they're in church already. Everybody who's already rejected, they've rejected already. What else are you going to do? You know, they see the churches on the corner and they, you know, the message is out there and they, they don't. And what are, you, what are you going to do? They just, they don't come. And as a Christian, I've, I've maybe given up on certain ways of doing evangelism because in my mind, they don't work. I used to be in churches where we canvass neighborhoods and go door to door knocking. And then at a certain age, I hit. I just said, "That that doesn't work." I just too many doors slammed in my face, too many people saying no, too many blocks to walk to just get all those rejections. People don't want to know Jesus, so why go knock on their door? I'm not saying let's all go knock on doors, but if we're not, if we're going to give up a strategy, it should be because it makes sense, not because well, I'm just tired of being rejected. And I think as a church. You know, for years, for generations, this church, 38 years, you know, praying and wanting something to happen. It's you're not human if you don't hit a place where you go, you know what? We've been praying this for 38 years. We've been praying that God will reach people for, you know, four decades already. And we put mailers out and we tried canvassing and we tried changing things out and we tried doing this and we tried doing that. But you know what? Deep down in our hearts. We don't think it's going to happen. I mean, we say we want it because we do. We do want it. And there's this recess in our hearts that we don't really tap into until we're confronted with a passage like this and we really go, you know what? I'm going to tell you another secret. I'm reading this passage and I'm like, that's kind of boring. I mean, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that was like this, that was really cool. And there's other passages that you're just like automatically excited to preach. And then a passage like this, you're like, so Saul's really bad, and then Saul got saved, and then Saul's really good, and so? 
That's a dangerous place. Because that just means I can put the sermon together and preach a sermon and and it's a, a crafted sermon. It's got an intro and a conclusion. It's got a couple illustrations or something. And I you understand the passage better now, having heard the sermon, and that was a successful sermon, but it didn't go through me yet. That I didn't get served so that I can serve you. I'm just taking something and trying to serve you something because that's what I'm supposed to do on a Sunday. And I say, you know what? God, I need this to hit me first. I need this to hit me and rock my world so then I can be ready to serve someone else. The plane is rocky. There's something we need right now. There's some oxygen we need. And as those masks drop down from the oxygen box and the top of the airplane, I need to put my mask first so I can get that breath and then I can help put the mask on someone else, right? My God, I, I need the oxygen. What what are you what are you telling me here? And I, I started looking at this and I, I I felt, hey, I don't believe that. I mean, I, as much as we try to talk about a relaunch and talk about doing this and, and meet with the elders and talk with other pastors and we get together and all of us, we get together, we pray. Sometimes we even hold hands. We're like, God, we want you to move in this place. We want you to move in this church. We want you to fill these pews and, 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 and do all of that. Irma Engelman had a dream, a literal dream, not, not a figurative speech dream. She literally had a dream that this place was full, full of people. And with tears in her eyes, she's like, I just believe that it'll happen. I believe that God's going to do this. God's going to reach people and save people and bring them in here. And one thing that I've been wrestling with is that when she passed away, I'm going, she didn't get to see that fulfilled. And then I, and then I, I push and, I, and I'm like, let's, let's do this, guys. We can do this. We can do this. And then we lose another person, another person. And when we did the Pastor Ortloff funeral, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, why is this not happening yet? Right? And it's not a discouragement like, am I not a good enough pastor or something like that? I find myself at the deep recess of my heart wrestling with what this passage is calling me out on. You know, you've got a community of people that are lost. They don't want to go to church. They don't want anything to do with church. That's why they're not here. That's why they're not at Living Hope. That's why they're not at Elk Grove. They don't want to do church. And deep down in the recess of my heart, I'm like, you know what? We're going to do what we're supposed to do, and we're going to use our resources to do outreach things and outreach events, and we're going to make sure the small groups are healthy, and we're going to preach the word, and we're going to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do. But deep down in the recess of my heart, do I really believe that God is going to meet some people on that road to Damascus and change them? I mean, we have to believe that. There's a story I heard a long time ago (coughs) of a, a drought that hit a town. And the drought was severe. And the church decides to have a, a, an emergency prayer meeting, you know, to, to just ask the Lord to rain, bring rain. And they're all standing out on the lawn, the dried, crunchy, uh, burnt up lawn. And they're holding hands in a circle and they're, they're praying. And the pastor's daughter comes out and the pastor's daughter kind of pulls on his coattail. And it's, honey, not right now, not right now. It's pulling on the pastor's coattail, not, not right now, huh? Dad, what? What are we doing here? We're praying for rain, honey. It's dry. We're thirsty. There's no water. It's, I mean, this is really bad. We're praying for rain. And then she looks around at everybody and she goes, where are your umbrellas? <laughs> God is powerful. 
God is wise. He knows it's not raining. We know God wants us to have water. And we know God can send water. That pastor probably preached that Elisha passage or maybe went to uh, Elijah passage and maybe went to James 5 to talk about the prayer of a righteous man. He prayed that rain wouldn't come and it didn't come. And he prayed that rain would come and rain did come. God is powerful. And if you pray and you believe that God can do it, God can do it and God will do it. Especially when scripture says this is something that God wants. And then we go out there on the lawn and we're like, God, we want you to send rain and we know you can send rain and everything. But you know what proves that we don't really know that God is going to send rain? We really don't think that God is going to send rain. Nobody brought umbrellas. And we look at a passage like this and we go, you know what? All odds are stacked against Saul. Never mind, never mind becoming a, a, a Christian or like just a, a Christ follower who kind of just hangs in there. We might have to just counsel this guy a lot. No, he's going to counsel Ananias. He's going to rebuke Peter in front of a congregation. And Peter is the man. He's the head apostle. And Paul's going to tell him. Paul's going to write most of scripture. Paul's going to evangelize the, that part of the world. He's going to travel around. And as, as much as they beat him up, he's going to come back. He's going to minister to Rome. He's going to die in Rome for the faith. Nobody could have made that up or guessed it. God just did it. And Ananias was waiting, and he responded in faith. Now, I can't take you on a drive and, and point, see that person walking their dog? That, that person's about to come. And then take you to the mall and go, see these people shopping right here? 80% of them, they're just, they're just all they need is a push. All they need is a message that there's a church that's real and not a legalistic, stodgy church that maybe they were used to growing up. But the real people, real changed lives, all they need to know is that there's such a thing. I can't tell you that. But when we look at Scripture and it says, guys, the harvest is ready, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. God doesn't need workers that are like showing up without baskets. God needs workers that show up with baskets. And say, you know what, Whether how much fruit we end up or don't end up with, that's on God. But I need to show up with the basket. And I think you and I together, we can look and say, uh, there's facts and there's statistics of things that don't work. Maybe in the very history of our own church, things that we've tried before and didn't work. New things that we might try and maybe they don't work. But if the bottom of it, everything and the core of our hearts we have to at least believe that God is going to work, that God can do it. And it took some time for Saul to come because he already killed some Christians. Ananias might have said, God, if you were going to intervene and change his life, why not do it before Stephen got stoned? We could have really used Stephen. Now, I don't know why, you know, there's sometimes a gap between the things that we're praying for and praying for and praying for and praying for and preparing for. And then we see like we just feel like God is not moving. But sometimes it's right at that moment where you start losing faith and start thinking like, maybe, maybe God can't do this. Maybe God won't do this. And then you're challenged to say, you know what? I need to believe it anyways. Maybe right there at that cusp is where God wants us to be so he can move. But it has to start with this feeling in our gut that God can take the worst of sinners and make them into heroes for the faith. God can take a lost community and turn it upside down for Jesus. If we believe that, then we can be like Ananias, ready to respond when God says, go. 
and that we can watch God do amazing things. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we have so much in the way of talent and resources, <coughs> education and other churches to partner with. And there's a lot to be thankful for. Um, but there's also a lot sometimes to, um, to mope about or to wonder about or maybe to doubt. And it's easy to base what we think about the future on what we know about the past. We know that some things we feel like have not worked or worked for a while and stopped working and we scratch our heads and we're not sure exactly why or exactly how. But what hasn't changed is we have a heart for the lost. But what does change is that we, we can sometimes lose faith a little bit that you have a heart for the lost, and that you want to do something great. So, Lord, it's easy for us to start burying our talents and to play it safe. But, Lord, we, we ask that you would give us the boldness and the courage, me and the elders uh, especially, to have that faith and that fortitude to understand your mission and to do what we can as a church to be in line with it. And that as we look back, we might look back and see growth or not see growth or see a, a ton of baptisms or a few baptisms. And we'll look back and we're not sure what the numbers are going to say, but we want to be able to look back and say we didn't lose faith and we didn't lose hope. We kept our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, which is not a new program, which is not a new budget, which is not a new checking account, which is not another pastor adding staff or a youth pastor or anything that we can add to the ministries of this church. You are the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ himself. And we ask that you would uh, give us the grace to, to fix our eyes on, on your son Jesus. And we can take that message even to the worst of people. And not be afraid for doors to slam in our face, um, but to look back and thank you that we, we proclaim the message. Um, well, we need your grace to do it. We need your grace to do it well. Build our faith in what you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.